listening to In Our Humble Opinion with me, Gary Henderson. And me, Ian Sturbridge. Um, so today, I think we're we're moving on a little bit. We've, we've previously kind of discussed some of the information that cybercriminals already have about us and about our networks through um, open source in, um, uh, intelligence and through some of the more active approaches they would make against a, a network, its users and its systems. And today we're going to start to kind of look at some of the actual attack vectors they might use in actually starting the attacks. Yeah, well, that's okay. I mean, it makes total sense because, as you say, we've taken the kind of listeners on a journey through OSINT, which is kind of the passive reconnaissance of our information. And last week, we kind of talked about the active scanning of networks and looking for vulnerabilities and maybe misconfiguration. So it makes kind of sense. They're they're at the door. So what are they going to do? I guess they're going to try and come in, right? So, um, I mean, for my money, there's kind of two, two very simple ways of looking at... Um, things they can attack there's public facing stuff um and of course there's not public facing stuff so what do i mean by that so when i'm talking about public facing um kind of risks i'm talking about having a, like a remote desktop server or a vpn connection or you might have your own on-premises website or you might have your website in the cloud uh, slightly different risks we could go into that later or if you got an on-prem email server there are not many of those left these days but some people might have them um, obviously, then you've also got your cloud services that you might be using and possibly even something like a remote access tool like TeamViewer, for example, is actually, in theory, a public facing service. It's a it's a remote access tool that's a software as a service. Um, so when I'm talking about non-public facing, if you imagine we just had a really simple firewall with the rule of anything's allowed out, nothing's allowed in and we didn't have any external services, we would have nothing public facing, which would kind of be great from a protection point of view in some respects, but somehow the attackers still get in. So we've got to kind of look at the, the different ways they try there. So, I mean, do you want to give us some of the examples of the uh, non-public facing uh, risks, Gary? Yeah, kind of. I, I mean, I, I I would sort of look at it slightly differently. I, I sort of look at it the, the kind of technical attack vectors, you know, the attacking the system, um, and whenever I whenever I think of those kind of things, I think the the, the kind of um, hacker movies and I I, I think we've, <laughs> in one of the other episodes you mentioned it, and the movie was Swordfish. Oh he's yes, got the I tried not to mention the name, but yeah, that's the, the very multiple one. screens, and you know that's the attack the system, and you know obviously the movies make it look not quite the way it actually is in reality, um. But the other side of it is rather than attack the system, um. There's one thing that most IT systems have somewhere, or IT processes have somewhere, and that's users, and I actually think they, they you know, the, you know more and more often is actually easier to attack the human beings, to attack the users and and the frailties of, of being a human being. And that's why, I mean, one of the questions I would, you know, I would sort of start, you know, with is um, what is the most likely, you know, attack vector? And I, I, ah. would, I would be inclined to say that continues to be phishing. Now, would you yes. agree? Yeah, I would actually agree 100%. So what you're talking about, Gary, is hacking the human. Yep, um, indeed. As opposed to the system. So, okay, well, yeah, no, and I quite agree. Um, in fact, I made a, a short educational video that was shown just last Friday to the school. 
about uh, different attacking methods. It was a very short video, very simplistic. But the one key thing that I pointed out to them was email in the fact that by design, email can come from pretty much any source, go through all of our scanning systems and be delivered to our endpoint in front of us because that's what email is meant to do. It's meant to get in front of us. So it, it really does bypass everything. Uh, and then you're presenting you're presenting a, a, a something that a human must interpret. So it's a message. If if you've sent me a good message, then I I might decide that it's okay to click on a, a something you've sent me. You might have sent me a lovely word document, for example. However, if it doesn't come from you, or it's someone pretending to be you, and I haven't been paying enough attention, and I don't notice that, and I still think, oh, a lovely document from Gary Henderson, and I open it, and it contains some malware then I'm in a world of pain. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think it is, one, the most common, and two, the hardest to protect in some in some uh, way, really. I think, you know, I think for me, part of it is, you know, we, knew, we actually believe that we read, um, you know, the email address, we read the contents of, of an email. You know, we, we believe that we, we read it in detail, but the reality is that we're human beings and we don't. And actually our brains you know, read it quickly. So, you know, a, a cyber criminal, let's say they can't, they, they aren't spoofing my email address. They can simply change, you know, some of the characters, register, you know, um, characters that are similar, you know, replace an L with a, a one, um, replace, well, yeah. a, you know, a, a, an I with... A perfect, a perfect example, Gary, would be, let's say, uh, when I've typed out uh, one of my word, word documents, to me, as I type it, it looks absolutely perfect. And my brain fills in the missing letters. Luckily for me, spell check and autocorrect step in to help me and tell me this word hasn't got any, the right number of letters in it. But it doesn't always get it right because I might have mistyped in a completely different word that's spelt correctly <laughs> and spell check skips it completely. And I suppose antivirus scanning systems in emails are a bit like that. They, they can be designed to recognise certain patterns, but sometimes they'll misinterpret what is actually a malicious pattern or the wrong pattern and let it through thinking it's A-OK. So systems are prone to it. And humans, our brains, I've just think of the exact example, our brains just fill in holes left, right and centre. So you can have a misspelt word that looks right. You can have a number that looks like a letter. Um, and also, is it Cyrillic alphabet, I think, yeah. is quite common now. Yeah, in that some alphabets. of those characters look very similar to our normal alphabet. Some listeners probably won't even know what a Cyrillic alphabet is. Well, one of the, um, one of the examples that I saw of, of this, and it wasn't kind of phishing as such, but it just highlights that social engineering um was was basically a, a um it was a, a it was a youtube where um it was a an ethical hacker and a gentleman and the gentleman was would basically a reporter doing a report and the ethical hacker said that she was going to demonstrate how easy it was to gain access to his mobile phone account and and what she used was no fan you know we've talked about Kali linux and things like that. she didn't use any fancy tools like that all she used was youtube and she went on YouTube and found a, a, a little video of a crying baby. And she pressed play, turned the volume up, and then she goes on the phone to to basically the service provider for this gentleman's mobile phone and pretends to be his wife, who's quite stressed and upset because the baby's crying in the background and she really needs to solve a problem with the account for her husband because he's away at the moment and unable to deal with it himself. And, and the operator on the other, ha other, the other end of the phone hears that she's stressed and does everything she can to help her. Um, 
but therefore, therefore doesn't carry out the appropriate checks to check that the person she's speaking to is actually who they claim to be. And by the end I, I, of the call, um, basically the ethical hacker has not only added herself to this gentleman's account, she's reset the password for the account and basically has full wow. control, but using nothing more than YouTube. Well, I mean, a very famous name in the world of hacking uh, is uh, Mr. Kevin Mitnick. I think he was once upon a time one of the most wanted hackers. He was on the, he was on the top 10 wanted list of most uh, American kind of uh, security organizations. And his specialism was hacking people. I mean, don't get me wrong. Technically, he was also excellent. But his great skill was being able to social engineer or manipulate people. And I think we are humans. Uh, we're, we're, uh, I don't know about you, but I think we're kind of hardwired to trust. Society is kind of just built on trust. If we didn't trust anyone, so, so the fabric of society itself just would start to erode and collapse. So trust is kind of hardwired into virtually everything we do. And so all of a sudden, um, the hackers are really just taking full advantage of how we are intrinsically programmed to behave socially. And so it's very hard for us to put in place procedures that go against the grain of one kindness, which you were talking about, obviously trying to empathize with a poor woman with a crying baby. That's actually a YouTube video in the background. Um, and, and also it says be helpful and kind, but also the fact that you're trusting that that person is the wife and not just some hacker with a YouTube video playing in the background, trying to manipulate your, your better self, you know? So, um, and I think but it's, I, I, how do how do we go about then changing? Cause literally we've got to change the fabric of society to protect them from social engineering. So how do we go about doing that? I, I'm, well, I think part of the issue here is that I'm not sure that we can change everything. I think we can sort of try to improve things. Um, but that um, the challenge is never ending. I mean, if, if, you know, and I actually think that this is maybe a, an interesting thing to consider. You know, I, I think um, in my experience, the, the, the cybersecurity kind of awareness training has improved. You know, that people are now a bit more aware of phishing, etc. And a bit more aware, you know, if you get the unexpected email and or the unexpected contact on LinkedIn or on Twitter and people are a bit more cautious of that. So I know that recently there was an alert went out from the NCSE and the NCSE talked about how cyber criminals were now spinning up kind of a number of fake LinkedIn profiles and linking them all together so that it formed a little group that related to the person they were targeting. So that when the, their, the account they were using to attack a person um, appeared on their timeline, when the, the, the person being attacked looked on LinkedIn, they could see that, oh, well, that, that looks real because they've got all these contacts and there's all this interaction and it, it clearly must be real. I think I remember reading about that. I think I remember reading about that, actually. Yeah, that was um, it's only recently they published that this week. Yeah, you know, as I say, late January, that's, that's gone out. So, I mean, here what we see is that, uh, in my view, the, the awareness training has got better but then and i think we've mentioned it in some other episodes the cyber criminals yeah, are constantly pivoting and and evolving their attacks and therefore it, it's forever a game of whack-a-mole you know um we're basically so in which case then if you're saying that you know we can't um 
fix the problem as such. And I think, uh, I think continual reminders, but not to the point that it annoys someone. Because obviously, when you say something to someone too much, they're just going to switch off to that message, aren't they? So it's kind of finding that sweet spot maybe telling them about different like oh this month the ncsc have said um several people will try and make friends with you on linkedin to kind of a, a backstory to the email and then maybe next month there's a different technique so fundamentally the technique is going to be the same they're going to be they're going to be trying to get you to do one of three things in my opinion if an email comes in it will either have an attachment they want you to open or there will be a link that you want they want you to click on now the link may take you to some dodgy website and download some software or it may present a false website to for you to kind of log into or it may actually be a water holing attack where they've gone to a proper website and they've got malware on it and you're just linked to a, what looks like a completely genuine website so and there would be no warning signals for you if it was imagine if um you and i hacked the bbc's uh it account and we and we've sent everyone there and they they log into the bbc so they can watch our podcast and we actually have malware on that site that would be a water holding attack and nothing on earth would stop that because the bbc is whitelisted virtually globally so, although admittedly, hopefully the BBC also have lots of protections to stop people putting malware on their websites. No offence, BBC. Please don't sue us. Um, so, I just, as you say, it's about this, the continually reminding people to, to be aware that there are people out there. I mean, confidence tricksters have been there since the dawn of time. Since there has been someone having something and someone not having something, the confidence trickster has arisen to, to engineer and, and manipulate people's emotions. So I, I think just, I, I think that's uh, a good a good example though. You know, you mentioned the confidence trickster. And I think that's something we are seeing um a little bit more of, particularly where the individuals are targeted. And that is where the, the, the cyber criminals actually play a longer game. And we'll we'll engage in you know pretty innocent chat and things like that. So there's no no you know attachment to signal you know there's a risk. There's no link to signal a risk. It's just a a, a period of months and months potentially of actually communication and back and forth to build up confidence to build up trust. Followed by at some point the scam or the malicious attack. Yeah further down the line because quite simply the the you know the cost to them of that conversation over the longer period of time there is no real cost to it it's quick easy done it's probably following a script for them so all it means is that they know that by doing that they've got a better chance of payout because they they're building trust over a period of time versus you know I think now we're getting better at recognising the sudden email that comes in with the attachment on it or the sudden email with the link on it. So therefore, I think we will start to see more of that playing the longer game to build that trust. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I know um, another thing that they've started to do that I was reading about the other day is that they'll target you on your personal side, as in your personal Facebook, your maybe your personal... Uh, LinkedIn and stuff away from work and build confidence in your personal side of your life and then approach you to kind of transition that trust across into like maybe oh by the way I'm on LinkedIn and I do this business as well and transition the empathy they've already built 
and uh, that, uh, the false trust that you've given them and then transition that across into a business environment. There's uh, there's no two ways about it. But whilst we're talking about emails, Gary, there's one, there's, I was chatting with someone, one of the, one of the um, I can't remember, it was a member of staff, I was having a discussion about, and they kind of threw two or three different terms out that I just thought, you know what, I think we should clarify it for our listeners because there is, people talk about business email compromise. Now, to me, that's like a specialist type of phishing. And I know you and I will probably argue about it. So I thought, oh, I'll say it first. So to me, business email compromise is where, let's say you're the director that can authorize um, financial payments. If I send an email to you requesting a financial payment and you make that payment to my bank account and I'm the baddie, that to me is a classic uh, business email compromise. Now, uh, it's phishing. In fact, it's actually spear phishing because it's targeted at you um, and it has a fraudulent financial exchange based in it. Now, the other thing that they were talking about was email account compromise. And I said, oh, that's not the same to me as business email. To me, email account compromise simply means Gary Henderson, I've got your username, I've got your password, I've logged into your email account. Your email account is compromised, email account compromised. And from there, I, you could then send an email as Gary Henderson to Ian Stockbridge saying, hey, Ian, don't forget to give me the £20 for, for the hosting fees for our, for our latest podcast. I go, oh, I'll send it to you now. Oh, that's a different place to normal. I'll, he just normally ask me to pay him in Bitcoin. <laughs> anyway, um, but you see what I mean? So I just do you want to do you have an opinion on these definitions? Because they're multiple I, definitions all around the same yeah, thing. I, I would slightly disagree. I, I, I would say your, your point regarding... Um, obviously spear phishing I would definitely call that spear phishing you know the targeted individual and going after them you know I had one recently the you know well I, I had one pretending to be me to our finance team go you know please can you authorize the following transfer needed urgently I had that that's I, business email compromise and to that's me, you see that, but... for me it's spear phishing um, because it, it came from you know it wasn't my email address um, it, it's a spear phishing attempt. That that would be how I categorise that. When I so do you at, class business email compromise as them taking over your account? Then I class business email compromise not as I would call it a simple email you know email compromise if they took over my account, but if they take over my account and then use it to attack others, then I consider that business email compromise a business email compromise attack using my account on whoever they use to attack that's that's where i would call that business email compromise oh i love it well any if there any listeners out there with a different or a or a uh, more authenticated definition of it i think gary and i are going to probably scarper off to the ncsc later on and find out which of us is closest so the answer will probably be all of us so i mean i th actually i think we've covered email in quite a good well, detail but I, you know we were still so you know we we're talking about the the non-public facing vectors and the people stuff you're talking about hacking humans so a classic um physical thing is someone looking over your shoulder i don't know if you've been sat on a train or a bus and you're putting your pin code into your phone or your finger sweep pattern or whatever it is someone can be just looking over your shoulder and then later on one of their colleagues could perhaps bump into you and lift your phone from you and they're in because they've literally seen or they might be watching you work on a laptop on a train and they could remember your username and password just by sitting next to you. I think that's, and that's a 
I think that's very interesting that one, especially and I, I don't, you know, the the kind of you know seeing people's codes and whatever, you know, these days kind of door lock codes, we don't have them as much. It's usually RFID cards. Obviously, they could clone that. But the thing that's got me thinking um, was some recent kind of stories I've read regarding you know what we have on our mobile phones these days. We have our banking and all of that on our mobile phone. So actually, the potential for us to be sat on the train and you know you've you've got your pin code and whatever you type your pin code in and and for somebody to watch that and then take your phone and i i wonder about um how many people have the same pin as for their lock screen that they also yeah. have for bank accounts and various other things on yeah. their phone and we don't think about that as much because when we talk about you know strong pass we talk about strong passwords <laughs> and having a different password but we don't think about actually having a different pin code on our phones and even though our phones quite often have facial recognition and biometrics you usually find it's also got pin code login as a as a fallback yeah so absolutely yeah yeah there's a risk no, I mean, that's, there. A, that's a classic example and also that's an example of one of the things that here another thing we suffer from as humans which is password reuse so whilst we reuse the same passwords we also reuse the same pin codes and that's an absolute no-no for the exact reason that we've just described there a scenario where someone's shoulder surfed your your unlock pin code and nine times out of ten i would put money on that also being perhaps your bank card pin code if they go to an atm or any other pin code that's asked for on your device or recovery even yeah it's it's, it's interesting when i i kind of discuss this regularly with students and one of the questions i usually ask is do you keep your device up to date etc do you patch and the answer they all give is yes we all do that because they've heard it on the news and you know what's the harm it comes up a warning you know click install job done um but then I use, so I, I usually congratulate the students for that. And then I follow up with a second question. How many of you use the same password across lots of services? And they all say, yes, we do that as well. And I'm like, well, that's not so positive. Um, so why is it that we've, we've learned, or I feel that we've learned to update our devices more than we used to do, but we still are reusing passwords? And I think the problem is one of human nature and convenience. You know, it's yes. easier to remember a single password than it is to remember multiple passwords and and pin codes as well and therefore there is that continued tendency to go with the convenience over the security and once again that's a human weakness they're abusing there in the fact that we don't like to remember lots of different things we like the convenience of remembering say one or maybe two things like one password and one pin number to do all of our devices I, and of course yeah as I, soon as that's given up the game is over i think the other thing is you know you're right about that um, remembering uh, too many things we can't do the other thing is we want to remember things that are memorable so i i would love to know and it's it's you know, I don't think it's an easy one to ever work out, but the, out of passwords that were created during the World Cup, how many of them had the word football, goal, <laughs> national teams in them, etc.? I can. Or your favourite team, of course, or favourite player. Yeah, I can. I can guarantee that there was a predictable nature of passwords. I mean, one of the other questions I ask students, I ask them to to you know. I, Passwords quite often these days ask you to include a uppercase um, characters, lowercase, and a number. Um, just ask people the question, you know, is the uppercase character the first one? Because strangely enough, we're used to putting uppercase characters at the front, so we tend to do it. And is the number at the end? 
And again, it's just one of those things. But, but thereby... And, and the thing is, is that those very human kind of patterns that you've described there are exactly what the hackers know. And so uh, that kind of... We'll come back to it a bit because that kind of plays into... Um, when I'm talking about the public-facing stuff, we talked about... I, th- I mentioned RDP and VPNs right at the start. Now, remote desktop protocol, for, yeah, everyone should know what that is, but basically it's, it's a, it's a, it looks like you're logging your local screen, except you're doing it across an internet connection or across a network connection. That's remote desktop. And so when you normally log into your computer, unless you've got multi-factor authentication, it would just prompt you for a username and a password. And remote desktop, if it's not configured with multi-factor authentication is exactly the same. So hackers absolutely love, love, and with a capital L, love remote desktop protocol. Why do they love it? Because if it's only got a username and a password, the username nine times out of 10 is a derivation of or the actual email address of a person. So half of the security is already gone. So you're just left with a password. Now we've already mentioned that we like to have one password. We've already mentioned that if it's going to be a capital letter, it's probably going to be the first one. And if it's a number, it's probably going to be on the end. So all of a sudden, you can start to come up with some quite clever word list generating things that will create passwords or a list of passwords. Or someone else will have gone to the effort of making a list of passwords for you that you can then try. And before long, your remote desktop protocol could be guessed. That that's, That is... The uh, dictionary attack is actually what I'm talking about, where the dictionary is your list of passwords and you do it. Now, the VPN is exactly the same. It's a username and a password. So the the risks of the VPN and RDP are exactly the same as far as I'm concerned with regard to how easy they are to guess without multi-factor authentication, which is why it is so vital to do it. Now, some people will say, oh, but they're protected because after three guesses, you get locked out for a minute and then you've got to wait a minute to guess again. So it means you can only do X number of words per hour. Now, I quite agree with that. However, what have we also just said? We like to have one password for everything. So if they can go and find... Well, first of all, they could go and attack a website that's not ours, like Facebook or LinkedIn or one of the thousands of other things we've probably signed up to and maybe even forgotten about. So they could do that. And even better, they could actually go and find all the all the time. We know that the uh, the small, medium, and large web providers are, have their have their passwords stolen and published on the dark web. So you can literally go and buy well, the the site. I think you you brought it up. Um, have I been pwned? Um, that site will tell you where your if your password has ever been visible or published on the dark web or your username. So you type in your username, it says, yes, this username has been leaked on the dark web. So you can pretty much go, and it will tell you whether it's from an Adobe leak, or whether it's from a Facebook leak, or whether it's from the LinkedIn leak, or whether it's the Yahoo leak. You know, every big organization, at least you've one you've signed up to, has probably had a password leaked. And if you've never changed it, or you've changed the number by one <laughs> at the end of your password, which we've also just mentioned, then they're going to guess you really 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 quickly i think um, you mentioned there with have i been pwned and I, I would you know the ability to actually put in a password and it'll tell you how often that password has appeared in other data breaches and i think that's brilliant yes. so in other words you can stick your password in and if it's never appeared then that's reasonably good that's quite strong but if it's appeared you know type in password as an option and you'll find out it's appeared <laughs> millions of times um, i think the yeah. other thing you, ju- you just mentioned the kind of you know the precautions of 
you know, um, three attempts and, and lockout or, or knockback such that you then have to wait before trying again. The cyber criminals aren't daft. You know, they, they know that these things are the case and therefore they've, they've already evolved past that. So what they won't might do is rather than trying 100 attempts on a given user account, they will you know, look at the, the email format and the username format for the organisation. From that, work out a whole list of users and then try different passwords and go account by account, one attempt at a time. Therefore, when they That's come... Right. So- that has so what was the proper brute, name for brute that? Brute force uh, versus it, spraying, I believe. Well, I was gonna say that's password spraying, isn't it? Exactly. So brute force is the one that we kind of got used to with the random guesses, or even a dictionary attack is uh, a cut down version of brute force. But password spraying, as you just identified there, is where someone says, "Oh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna try." 20 different names with one password because each 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 name only gets it wrong once so nothing's going to be going off the radar there's going to be no red alerts or any back off or any throttling back because you haven't failed one password three times you know one user hasn't failed three times you've had a thousand users fail once so you can really kind of keep full throttle at it password spraying now the other one do you want to tell us about um credential stuffing then come on gary Give us credential stuffing. Oh, I'll leave that one to you if that's all right, well, actually. So, well, because credential stuff, I, again, I was just trying to make sure I, uh, because uh, I, I was used to brute force and, and I was used to password spraying, but credential stuffing, I thought, oh, well, that's just another brute force. No, credential stuffing is where you get a known pair. So like we were talking about the have I been pwned or all the database leaks of uh, you know, Ian Stockbridge's password is chocolate biscuit and Gary Henderson's password is Tizer uh, that's been leaked out of a previous data breach. They'll just take those match pairs and they'll just work through all of the match pairs that have been leaked on the basis that they believe at least a certain percentage of those will not have been updated or changed. And so that's credential stuffing. So they're just literally shoving in a, a username and password that they know existed once upon a time. And if that didn't work, they just go to the next matching pair and the next matching pair. So there you go. We've given people three different techniques of um, of passwords being rammed down the throat of an RDP or VPN server. And I think... Uh, all of which are quite likely to pop them. And, and for me, I mean, I've, I've always... And I don't know if you'll agree with it. I've always thought that one of the reasons, you know, Principally, RDP was particularly favoured, um, and obviously VPNs now, you know, they've become much more common. Is is not only the fact that quite often they're poorly set up in terms of security, but it also it's the fact that once you're in, you're on the network. Oh yes. And therefore, you then, you know, we talked previously about the the, the kind of external um, recon and exploring the external attack surface of an organisation. Well, once you've got RDP or you've got access to a VPN, you're then on the network and therefore you can now start to, to carry out your, your reconnoiter within well, the organisation. Exactly. And you're on using good credentials. So no alarms are going to go off because you're using valid credentials. It's let you in the system. So you know you look like a normal user the only thing that might be slightly different is your locate if your location or the hours you were doing it were different but that's that requires sophisticated tracking and and not everyone we're talking about has those capabilities in fact i'd wager the majority of our listeners 
probably don't have that level of sophistication. So you, you're quite right. And that's it. Once you're connected to the network, that's when the, the, the reconnaissance actually starts all over again, or the footprinting, because they will start to, all the things that we were talking about in the last two weeks, they'll just do that inside the network to find out, oh, have they got a file server? Have they got a print server? Have they got a SQL server? Have they got an email server? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I remember reading a couple of years ago that they talked about dwell time. So once they were on your network, how long they stayed there. And I think at that time, it, it was like 200 days or, or approaching a year on your network um, while they were sat there observing, listening before they actually um, kind of um, launched whatever their payload or did whatever they were going to do. I, my sense is that that dwell time has reduced as they seek to get payoff quicker. Um, would you would you agree or would you? Well, uh, so uh, the, uh, the, well, the, to me, if if I was to kind of put my uh, my hacker hat on my or well, grey hat, because obviously I would be an ethical hacker, but if I were not an ethical hacker, you're either looking for me, right? You're either looking for information. And that could be like an ongoing, almost like an intelligence-based thing. So if we were working for some kind of government secret agency, one, we wouldn't want anyone to know we were on the network. So we want to keep our profile really low and slow. And, you know, we wouldn't want to do anything that makes us stand out. And we would want to gently hoover up as much information continuously as we could. So you want to stay in the network forever and you want to make very little noise so no one can detect you're there and you're getting all this lovely little snippets of information that you can continually feed into an intelligence stream for maybe designing something else, like a big attack later on or, or trying to work out. So so I'm with you. So that there is the stealthiness and those long dwell ones are definitely stealthy. Whereas you're kind of your ransomware gang now. I mean, now I think it was in the news... Was it today or is this week definitely where the BBC were talking about the American announcement of closing down the Hive ransomware gang? Uh, and, you know, the Americans were very proud. It was a multinational effort and everyone worked together to, to, you know, to bring an end to this ransomware gang. And that they had actually been stealthily at attacking, well, not attacking, they had hacked into the Hive gang's network so that they could get the, get the encryption keys back out of the network to hand back to the people or tell people in advance, we've seen they're lining you up for an attack, get ready. And by the way, we've got these encryption keys that we can give you if it happens to you. So again, they, they were kind of, again government agency kind of stealthy in for a big period of time but the ransomware gangs themselves i think the risk of them being detected before they've achieved their mission is too high so i think they want to be in get the job done as quickly as possible and then get out now for us the classic example is the holiday weekend we discussed it in our first episode you know a long holiday weekend or the christmas holidays those could be networks fundamentally being left with automated backups, but not really being actively monitored for any kind of use at all. So a hacker could be in, you know, from Friday till Monday morning, a hacker could have the whole weekend to go around your network, delete your backups, find whatever he wants, um, exfiltrate any data he wants, drop the bomb, so you come in Monday morning. Uh, you know, but the, I think once they're in, if it's to do with getting things like ransomware payloads, and I think they do move really fast mm. now because they want to achieve that target before you can get in and stop them. I think I'd speculate that you, you've probably hit the nail on the head that the stealthy you know, approach is more the kind of governments and nation states you know, that want to gather intelligence but the the criminal gangs want to monetize quickly and minimize the risk of getting caught and therefore not being able to monetize and therefore act much much 
quicker um, and you know launch their payloads quicker. I think that's true. I think um, I th- also you know f- um, for people listening, I think one of the key things is what is the mitigation measure for some of this for you know particularly you know RDP and VPNs. And I think you've already you know stated it a couple of times, which is to have multi-factor authentication in place to to reduce the risk of of that username and password pair that they need that other factor. Yes. Now, now I think we should also we should also definitely kind of at least point out it's not a silver bullet because even multi-factor authentication can be circumvented I- because we're humans. So someone might phone us up and say, "Oh, I'm just about to buzz you with a multi-authentication prompt. Can you authorize it? Because I'm doing some servicing on the network tonight." And if you don't know what it is, you might go, oh, "Okay," and that could actually be a hacker waiting to let for you to let them in. I've had that. Um, I've had that from a phone provider. Somebody trying really? to take over a, a, my phone, and that's exactly what I had. You know, oh, this is the phone provider. Um, you know, we're sending you a one-time passcode to prove it's us. Can you authorize that? And actually, yes. when I phoned up the phone provider, they've said, "Actually, no, that wasn't us." Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, definitely seen that kind of thing happen. But nonetheless, it is an extra layer because without that, as soon as you've got the username and password, that's game over. So I think, uh, yeah, great advice in the fact RDP or VPN, if anything that is just controlled with a username and password that is public facing, 100% put MFA on it if if it's at all possible. And if not, a really, really long, really long password or passphrase that is unique to that login and, and never used anywhere else. And I think adding to your point about it not being a silver bullet, um, I think it's also worth noting that multi-factor authentication comes in different flavours and different strengths. And, you know, so your multi-factor authentication using a one-time passcode, um, that is significantly less secure than a, a hardware token, you know, and, yes, and I would a, completely agree. A, a mobile, you know, an authentication app, I would argue, sits between the two. It's more, it's more secure than a one-time passcode, but less, yeah, but less secure than a hardware token. token. In fact, the, I mean, the, the, the phrase that's becoming, I've noticed over the past twelve months, becoming much more popular and much more prevalent is a phishing-resistant MFA. Have you seen that now? Because what they're saying is, is that. Um, especially the Uber hack that went down recently, uh, they did. They effectively bombed the user with multi-factor authentication push requests. So, so your little app is popping up every twenty seconds, going beep 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 beep. Authorized. Eventually, a user either misfires and hits the wrong button accidentally, or gets bored and just goes, "Oh, for goodness sake, yes." And of course, then the hack's gone in. Now that is called MFA bombing, apparently, or MFA phishing, which I don't really. It all we can start going down the phishing argument again if you like. But you know, but nonetheless, so there is a thing called phishing-resistant MFA, and so what that effectively means is that you can't be bombarded with responses. It's a hardware token. You either have it or you don't, and you either put it in and activated it or you haven't. I, I, um, I, and so that's phishing-resistant. I, I just love. I don't. It's, it's a little bit of a tangent, but the, you know, the the discussion we're sort of getting into about what you call things, and I just love things like you know. Obviously, we talked about fishing, but we haven't mentioned smishing, um, or, or vishing, or, or quishing. Oh, yeah. So we've got vishing, smishing, quishing, fishing, spear fishing. Now there, I think there's there's whaling <laughs> and there's water holing. Yep. So uh, and and all of those are different kind of angles, a similar thing. And the fundamental thing is making a human 
do something that they shouldn't do. Social engineering. But it's like six different physical approaches, whether it be through an SMS or through a voicemail or whether it be through a Teams meeting. There's probably going to be one for... for I mean, vishing is video, isn't it, I think? Nope. So that's, voice. Voice. That one's, oh, that one's your telephone, so, so in my view. A, if I was going to do it over a Teams meeting with you now, what would we call that? Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. I'd, I'd, I'd assume you're probably right in vishing because... Um, but I, I, my understanding was it always came out of the voice side of things to start with. But yeah, no, you're I, right. I'm with you. I tell you what, again, that's another one. Any listeners listening, please drop in a line for us. Uh, otherwise, Gary and I will be racing each other to the to the NCSC. <laughs> Who can register the, the title for first? That. Yeah, but it is. But it is. Um, I mean, it, it highlights one of the challenges that that you know in IT we love to either stick a name to something or an acronym to something, and then add to oh. that working in education, which also loves its acronyms. Um, that's a perfect recipe for confusion. It, it is. It is. A, it is a horrible recipe for confusion. Now, um, the only thing that I do, there are two things that are physical that I didn't mention earlier, and I feel guilty if I don't mention it quickly because we're talking about remediation. So, picking up a USB pen and plugging it into your computer, the remediation is really, really simple. Don't ever, ever, ever do it <laughs> because you don't know what's on it. And there are multiple devices out there already that are designed to either destroy, physically destroy your system on plugging it in or activate an invisible script. So uh, don't plug I, USB I, pens in. I, I love the thing, physical access is the last thing I was going to say, Gary. Physical access, as in if, you, if you've got an office with with stuff in it, any kind of information tool, whether it be a piece of paper with a name on it, lock your office when you're not in it. It's very simple. Don't leave doors unlocked and don't leave visitors unattended. There we go. Over to you. No, as I say, you're talking about USBs there. And obviously you can get the you know the little charge cables that have the yes. malicious yes. things inside them. And and therefore I mean who's gonna think a charging cable is gonna attack their system? It, it, but it's actually a hacking device. Whilst they're charging their iPhone on, oh I found a handy charging cable, it's actually hacking their system. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I, and I mean I I was on the train recently. And you're obviously you've got the power sockets and you've got the USB yep. power sockets. I'm quite all right using a plug, um, but I I always kind of stop myself before oh, I I just use the USB on the train and plug in. No, I'm not. You know. No, I'm, I'm with you. If I have my charger with me in three pin plug socket, that's fair enough because I know I trust my charger. But yeah, would uh, anything that connects to your USB port in theory can talk to the data on it. That's a no no. I, I, def- I, de- so, I definitely think it's about being careful and vigilant. It's a, I suppose the argument's the same, there, or the, the advice there is the same as with fishing. You know, if you don't expect it, if it's unusual, if it's, oh, look, isn't that convenient? Somebody's left a charging cable that I can use. Then t- Or a free, look at this lovely new USB pen I found on the floor. Yeah, yeah well, especially if it's got HR files or payroll written on it, which is, <laughs> which is guaranteed to tempt people to, to pick it up. Um don't plug it in yeah i think that's excellent stuff so gary i think judging by the time it's probably time we lead our listeners out of another another exciting podcast so um uh, over to you sir thank you for listening to in our humble opinion with me gary henderson and me ian stubbridge 